Well, this is, this is awesome. I am a huge fan of everything that you do across every platform uh, that you do it on. Um, I've followed you, you know, through the, the Enrage stuff, the stuff you do uh, alone, your talks, the stuff you did with the Modern Rogue. I'm just I'm a big fan. It's, it's an honor to be, to be talking with you. I'm, uh, That's fantastic. It's nice to meet folk who enjoy my buffoonery. I am a professional <laughs> nothing other than swear word sayer occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, that's 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 all you need to be, really. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> well, um, what would you? How would you describe yourself? Like, I realized I was trying to write like an intro for how I would describe you, and I have no. You do so many things. What yeah. what do you consider yourself primarily? So it depends what conversation I'm having, right? Like, if I'm having a business discussion and someone wants to pay me money. I am a covert entry specialist and a safe technician and a physical penetration specialist, that kind of thing. When I am hanging out with just the hacker community, I am an experimenter, a tinkerer, a a, a, a physical kinetic kind of person. I like mm -hmm. everything from locks to firearms to, uh, I don't know, is this kinetic? How quickly can I run back to the bar? There's more kinetic for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, at this point... The older you get, the more you realize you're probably not what you thought you were going to be. And hmm. that changes more and more every day you grow older. Like every day I'm on this planet, I'm realizing I'm totally not what I thought I was going to be last week. That's very interesting. How do you feel your career evolving as you age? My career continues to be a trajectory of tripping over backwards unexpectedly into opportunities. <laughs> Fair um, enough. Fair enough. Which is a, it's an allegory for like what a lot of people realize life is and being able to just to seize opportunities when they come is a definition for a lot of people's success, I think. That's fair. No, that's 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 totally fair. Uh well it, 10 years ago, did you have any idea that you would find yourself where you are right now? Maybe. I think 10 years ago was close enough into this track of my life that you could say I started having like dreams of achieving some of this. That was right around the time that I started uh, to get more involved professionally. That's when my buddy Bobak started the company that ultimately I'm now a partner in. And I started speaking publicly a lot more. So I, the, the picture was coming together maybe about a decade ago. That's about right. Interesting. Well, and, and, uh, and he appeared with you also on The Modern Rogue, correct? Yes, he did. Everyone Very loves those frames on his glasses. Those are trippy looking. <laughs> Now, does he does, does he have his own YouTube channel and, and, and the works, or is he more of a behind-the-scenes guy? Um, he's not as behind-the-scenes as our NSA guy, who's the other partner in the company. But he no, he doesn't have his own YouTube channel. He appears sometimes on mine. Uh, he'll show up in talks and other activities. He and I have been friends for an immense amount of time at this point. Uh, and he's also, a, you know, much like Robert is the third guy. We're all firearm guys as well, so he'll come to my group shoots. Uh, yeah, we, we all kind of show up in the same spots, even though... It's easier to notice me because I'm bigger and louder. <laughs> well, what what brought you to firearms originally, and how long have you been involved with firearms? Oh, since I couldn't see over these ammo cans, you know, like I, I was I was shooting since I was little. Uh, my family, as with my wife as well, like our, we both come from military families, so there were always just guns in the house. We grew up in rural settings. Uh, they were just it was normal. It was just very normal to be around guns. And my dad, I guess I got my first rifle when I was eight. Uh, then we started going to the gun range together, father and son kind of thing, when I was around 11, 10? No, we'll call it 11 or 12, uh, something like that. Mm. And yeah, just ever since then, I just enjoyed firearms. as they, they, they never held, it's really interesting, when you grow up with them, 
they don't hold that mystique in terms of being evil totems of Satan or yeah, being yeah. like forbidden fruit. Right, they're right. just they're just kind of monotonously there. Every time I watch Carl with a beautiful firearm in a match, just kind of throw it on the ground. Um, everyone like non-gun people, but like don't get it. But they're like, no, yeah, this yeah. thing is this. It's supposed to survive being dropped on the ground. It's a freaking gun. It's a durable object. Right, right. It was literally designed to do that. You know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that's really interesting. Do you remember what that first rifle was that you got when you were eight, by chance? Oh, the very, very first rifle. I'm including air, like air guns and pellet guns. So that was a Daisy pellet gun, absolutely. Uh, that quickly moved into 22s. So 10 22s would show up. Uh, he also had a 22 Woodsman. Uh, that was Good a choice. pistol that we really liked to use. That was a Browning Woodsman. And oh, yeah. yeah, he had a he had a revolver. He had a uh, for the longest time. I didn't realize that the Colt automatic he had was a 38 Super. Um, somehow I knew it was 38 Cal, and it, much of my life I must have like thought it was a 380 or something. Uh, and uh, like I was probably 20. I was I was like, hey, I was going to do a side-by-side -side comparison of some of my 1911s and show your smaller Colt pony. And I took it out of the box, and I was, I was like, fuck me, this 38 Super. <laughs> remember that cartridge? Damn. That's one of those cartridges that I'd like to see make a comeback because it's such a fucking cool round, you know. But yeah. uh, um, you know, any anybody under the age of, of thirty has probably never even seen that cartridge in person. But uh, it's it's I think there's still a place for that. Like it's it's so gentle and easy to shoot it well, but it's still yeah. you know it's still got enough of a wallop, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I still I believe some of the competitive people really like it just because of how flat it is. Yeah, that that makes sense. I'm I, I'm guessing that's probably one of those cartridges. If you uh, if you loaded it right and stuck a comp on the end of it, I bet uh, I bet that'd just be a, be a breeze, you know, at a match. Um, what what was your first gun that you thought, wow, like like I've made it now that I've got this gun? <laughs> like I, that's I like every set. gun you buy, right? Um, <laughs> right, right. Until there you are a the few. So the ones that have just been watershed. Wow, this is amazing, kind of thing. Um, it's not going to get as much love from some of the community, but the AR-18 platform, um, oh, yeah. like, yeah, so I, I have a Sterling produced 180 and that which just, it was really the first time that I, because the thing as James and other friends of ours have talked about on TFB, like it looks like something out of Mad Max. Like it's the most kludgy looking clunky eighties demon uh, well, it wasn't from the 80s, but like it looks like something out of an 80s like post-apocalyptic film. But it it runs like a freaking champ. Like I was yeah, yeah. just blown away by how and how easy it is to take apart and service. I love the the, the platform. I'm not going to put pistons in most of my builds. Um, and another one recent, more recent than that was a lever gun. I I've shot lever guns in the past. I hadn't owned one. I picked up so Chiapa through the Taylor Company. Now they are they've been re-releasing the Model 92 as a takedown as a real nice interrupted threads backpackers yeah. kind of gun and it's just it's just like lever guns are just fun man they're just really hella fun to shoot was 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 carl an influence there in, in getting you into lever guns especially in my choice of 357 yeah i was yeah. walking around the shot show floor with him and ian and we actually walked by their booth and i was that's when i was turned my head and I went, oh and i was walking with carl and i was like so what do you think 4570 or just go 44 and he's like no, let's like, get 357. You can stuff more bullets in the in the tube. Like you can get more rounds out of it, and it's going to be just as effective. You get really good muzzle velocity out of that. Like go for it, just do that. And I would not look back. I love it. Yeah, three. I mean, 357 is like it's it's fucking booking it out of that gun. I mean, that's oh, yeah. that's that's a remarkably serious cartridge when you put it in that in that format. You know, 
Um, yeah. And I'm a yeah. big believer in um, having a lot of steel that takes the same food. So we have plenty yeah. of 38, 57 revolvers in the house. And so being able to, this was, I also bought it at a time when it looked like we might have to get a second home in California. Uh, my wife was potentially getting an executive change of role to a company that would have required us to be resident there for part of the year. And it's just easier to bring a revolver and a lever gun and not have to deal with whatever registry nonsense is going on down there. So that was another choice. And I was like, oh, I picked this one up. Didn't have to move there. Still kept the gun. Yeah. And, and you know, that's if I lived in any in a banned state, I mean, that would be the first thing that I'd look to. It's still plenty fast, plenty effective, very low recoil. The ammo's everywhere. It's just it's it's amazing that after all this time, that's still if you're forced into it, that's a remarkably effective choice. You know, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it really is. Uh, yeah. What, um, now, what was what was your first handgun that because uh, I'm, I'm getting a sense of, of your taste in rifles here. What was what was the first handgun where you thought, man, this is this is the one this one. Uh, my it. first purchased handgun was a proper 1911, a GI 1911 in 45. Uh, my father, the ones that he took me with to the range when I was young, he didn't. Keep, so he was in the service. Uh, he deployed out to Vietnam, but he didn't keep uh, the 45 he was issued. So he had his other pistols at the time. And yeah, I'd never actually tried a 45 till I was at the range, tried a couple rental guns. And I mean, everyone, you, you know, there's so much, I won't call it bad information, but everyone has their own anecdotal information. So when yeah. you talk to people, they're like, oh, that 45, you got to really hold that one back. <laughs> and I tried it. I was like, I mean, yes, it kicks more than a 380 or something, but it's not, it's totally manageable. And so for historic value, that's the reason I picked up a couple 1911s in my life. That's the reason I have, you know, an M1A. They, they might not be the most modern of firearms that I would advise anyone who like owns nothing. I wouldn't say, go pick this up. It's perfect. But the historical value makes me happy with them. That's totally fair. Now, now would you consider yourself, though, like a 1911 guy? Or, or, or do you just think, hey, this is, a really, this is a really cool gun, but I still sort of have an appreciation for, for other things? Because, you know, there are those folks who, like, they get... They they that's love true. 1911s at the expense of all else. Like that's the only gun there is on on this earth is the 1911. No, no, no. they're they're a perfectly fine gun. They're they are they're becoming obsolescent for weight, in my opinion, for any yeah, other purpose. Agree. I mean, you you can keep one around, keep in like the hunting cabin. We've got a stainless steel 1911 sitting in it, along with a stainless steel Mossberg Mariner, because they will just live forever. They will never die. They can just sit in the in the box. Um, <laughs> I'm a I'm a Glock I'm a Glock person nowadays. I used to buy a lot of H and K gear, and yeah, I still yeah. have I still have one more pistol. It's on Gunbroker right now. Link in the description. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we're actually still gonna put that in, but you know who knows. But you know I've uh, plastic fantastic tactical Tupperware right like polymer double stack magazine or checkerboard magazine. Uh, I've switched to Glock for just about everything, and again that's been to match um, not just the ammo with the rest of my team. But to be able to just swap magazines around between so many different firearms, it's universality of feeding devices alone has made me enough of a fan of the Glock platform. Yeah, that's that's entirely fair. And I'm, I'm, I'm a, a Glock person for the same reason. It's not necessarily my all time favorite pistol to shoot, you know. Um, in fact, and you mentioned HK in terms of just, you know, uh, pure shooting enjoyment. I, that's usually what I would reach for. But. You know, it, it, the only thing that takes HK mags is an HK, and then the magazines are, you know, yep. they're sixty dollars, and and they're made exactly. of like, you know, pure gold, and you're afraid you're going to lose one at the range. So yeah, it, it's it, the Glock makes way more way more sense for most people on most situations, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I've been uh, watching your series on laser training devices uh, during the pandemic. 
what else have you been doing to train besides using the using the lasers? That's just about it. Presentation drills and lasers. And, st and I still get to the range. I still have friends in town uh, who we, they're actually really good for me because normally I don't go anywhere. Like it takes a lot to just get me want to leave in the house. So pandemic yeah. has me double down on like no pants freaking every day. Um, but yeah, they, they'll get like, hey, you want to go to the range this week? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll go. And then I always feel great when I, I'm like, I'm so glad I came here. This is awesome. But it's they, they drag me out. So that's good, too. Did you, uh, do you feel this sense of guilt every time you pull a box of nine millimeter out of your stockpile and, and put it in the range bag? It's like, oh, I, I, I know I have to part with it, but God, I'm never going to see another one. Or, or do you look at it as, well, look, this is just what I got to do to stay on top of things. It's the price of it. How, a how do you feel bit, about it? A little bit I do, but um, I've come to feel, and this it's the changing landscape of, what we define as like what means to be taking your collection seriously, what it means to be prepared for an unforeseen event. I really believe that again, mostly Glocks in the house for me, my wife, etc. Having three or four standard G19 magazines full of defensive ammo and having in a backpack, if we have to jump in the car and like leave town to go to a friend's house, uh, having a couple stick mags, you know, uh, in there. So any incident that you're not solving with a few magazines of nine mil is a it's, something has gone massively wrong. Like yeah, you are in a bad situation. Like, reach for a rifle. Yeah, something terrible has happened. Yeah. If, uh, if it's so, yeah, I've been throwing a lot more nine mil at the range, and I'm pretty confident that the market will eventually correct and settle down. I'm very privileged to have a lot of nine mil around, and I've been selling it some to friends. Like when we go to the range, so they don't have to pay the prices at. The, like our local range, some days they only have defensive ammo. They don't even have ball ammo. And they're like, you can shoot this if you want. Oof. So yeah. And I, we recently changed ranges. So the range we go to now allows aluminum case kind of stuff, which the other place didn't. So that, and I had plenty of that that I just never really thought I would shoot. Yeah, that's that's fair. So so they go to the range and they're they're selling them like boxes of 20 HSTs and expecting them to walk out into a bay and just just blast through those at a dollar a pop. And people are doing it. People are doing it because they, they don't have anything at all. Mm, man, that's that's just that's that's brutal to think of. So did, do you keep a running stockpile or did you kind of feel this coming or or uh, how, how do you handle ammo shortages? A lot of the ammo on like I'll send you a photo or two of my basement shelving, right? Like a lot of the ammo on this shelf where these boxes all kind of live in a live happy existence. A lot of that came with me from the East Coast when I moved. This was pre, like, pre-Obama administration buying when I saw, you know, I didn't, th again, like, I don't believe that any administration is really going to do crazy dumb things to the law, but I know that the market's going to respond. And early in the primaries, I was like, oh, wow, this is a very captivating politician. They're going to get a lot of popular support. Whether they even win or lose throughout the general election cycle, people are going to go nuts. So I was working a really lucrative contract at the time. I just bought thousands of rounds of 5.56 and 9mm and some other assorted things. A lot of, a lot of shotgun rounds. Uh, at the time, my, my home defense setup was mostly shotgun focused. And I've had so much of that over the years because I will, you know, you eat, you eat into it. And then once you get used to the idea of having that much around, like, oh, I look a little light. So then a couple years later, you buy some more. But yeah, it always fluctuates like that. I've just kind of always had a lot around. 
And it's, it's kind of, I guess, like having a big stack of chips at the poker table. You can muscle that around and borrow from it when you need. You can kind of control the, the tone and the tenor of the situation you're in. When you have a lot, you're not panic buying and then spending too much and then wishing you hadn't or who the hell knows what. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great way to approach it. I, I, think that, I think that more people should, should kind of do that instead of waiting for some sort of catastrophic problem. Because, you know, like, like you said, you, if, you, if you do it when things are good, you're paying $160 a case instead of, instead of $500 or whatever it is. Um, Absolutely. So I, I, yeah. yeah I, I co-own a gun store with a friend of mine, and we get calls every day with people saying, like, I will pay literally any price for 9mm if you have it. It just just makes me just it hurts my heart like you'd pay any price <laughs> you know like you'd pay a thousand dollars a case but yeah it was just just you know folks not not doing that planning in advance um uh, i've noticed you do a lot of of, of uh, diy projects just across the board related to anything just anything that you're interested in when did you first start doing diy gun projects and and do you do them for enjoyment or do you do them to get things done that you just couldn't get done any other way little bit of both um i would say so let's see kind of reach into the old memory drawer in the head the first firearms that i really modified heavily it's it's a boring answer but it probably started when i started picking up ar rifles um and there was a certain necessity there because i was i was actually a resident for a while of new jersey and you buy a rifle like from a friend or something you know another state and before it can come into the state You'd have to, you know, change. Like, we couldn't have a collapsing stock. So I was like, all right, I have to change the stock. And then I realized, oh, the buffer tube's not compatible with this stock. And got to change that out. And then taking off the buffer tube means you got a little spring and sproing in bits. And you're like, oh, I better learn how these work. So that was my first foray into the AR platform. I never just could walk into a store and buy one off the rack uh, because of where I lived and when I was, was getting them. Other things, though, have really kind of come into play where uh, the... Again, it seems to come, we've like what's old is new again. We're back to ARs, but then like project ARs, either the stoner rifle or the, the retro build that Carl's been releasing on his channel. Uh, yeah, I mean, I bought the Ghost Gunner so I could engrave and manufacture uh, rifles exactly as I want them, not have to be beholden to any designs that were already out there. And by the way, the, the the retro build is looking is looking great. Like you, you kind of had me thinking, well, maybe I maybe I need to get a get a ghost gunner and do something pretty yeah. similar. I mean, it looks it looks really really good. I'm happy with it. I, I know uh, I, I know I don't think the anodization video is out yet. But how how hard did it end up being? I know it's not exactly anodization. But how hard did it end up being to to actually get the the, the spray? Oh, yeah. or, or did you dip it or spray it? No, it was a spray. It's super easy. Um, John Norell has a really nice uh, product. The, the Molly Resin turned out to be just right. Because again, I, part of what I like to do in a lot of my videos, the one video in that series that is out that's like so exemplary of me is that um, Sandblast, right? Like making a <laughs> stupid Sandblaster with like a drink bottle and an air compressor. Because I want to show people like, here's the cheapest, potentially dumbest way you could do this without leaving your house. And, and it the same thing. Go ahead. And it worked. <laughs> yeah, it worked great. Yeah, absolutely. And the same thing goes for the Molly resin. Like there, you can do anodizing at home. It's it gets weird. Like I know people who do electroplating and things in their sink, but I wanted something that was a spray and bake kind of finish that you could just throw in the oven. And John's been he's been he's been doing this forever. I mean, he's been rebuilding rifles. I, I spent a lot of time on the phone with him. It was really cool. 
he's been going back when like Rock River Arsenal, uh, Rock River Armory would like Red Red River Arsenal when they would they basically decommission M16s. They would chop them in half and throw them in a pile, and he would go out to their scrap pile and just get halves and see. I, I could make these two. This one's got a little bit of slop because he got that kerf on the cut. So he would get halves that he thinks he could work. He'd, he'd mate them up. He'd you know get them together, weld them back. And he was he made his uh, like coding business at the time, just trying to match all these old colors. So that really appealed to me that his passion for this kind of project led him to develop this substance that would be like it was it was a labor of love as much as it was an industrial design of his. So I was yeah. like, I got to try it. I got to do it. And we had a little air compressor, a little tabletop air compressor that we use in the kitchen for confectionery work. Uh, my wife was like, you cannot put chemicals through that, but you can use the compressor. So I went back to Hazard Fart, and I bought some little dinky air gun at attachment, spray gun thing, and it works. It worked It worked great. You'll get to see the video in a week or two. It's, I'm very happy with how it worked. I mean, it just, you know, I'm, I'm seeing it through a webcam, but, I mean, it looks great. Like, when you're getting results like that, do you think anybody should go through the hassle of anodizing when you could just get a hold of some of that stuff and, and do it that way? This was great for a uniform coating. Um, anodizing, you can do a lot with masking a surface so that you can anodize actual designs into a surface. Uh, I don't have one in front of me, but uh, one of the rifles that a buddy of mine made for this, the shoot event at the HackerCon, DEFCON, he made some 80% receivers that he had anodized with a really amazing design, like a circuit board head kind of design. It looked very retro future. And like you can't really do that easily with a spray like you could stencil but not with the crispness that anodizing and if you hard anodize if you like you know type 3 anodize that's going to be probably i think more robust than anything you could spray or dip uh pvd and anodizing is really like firearm coatings and finishes have made leaps and bounds in the last 10 years to fi five to ten years really yeah yeah no that's 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 totally fair um so if somebody, let's say though somebody has a very limited budget, the 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 spray option is going to be a lot more doable, though, right? Mm -hmm. Than the uh, than the anodizing. Oh yeah, and you know you can get two different colors of spray, right? The the, the Norel Molly resin is not expensive, and I love I really love when people just do hacky shit. Um, even like if you're just rattle canning from the hardware store, but if you're doing a hard like even the Molly resin, I've seen people that they'll spray one color. And then they'll just get like foliage, like ferns, like leaves, and they'll, light, they'll just use them as a as a stencil. Um, friend of mine up this way, tactical girlfriend, she's on YouTube, right? She uses basically like a mesh bag, like the kind of bag that gym teachers would have the kickballs in. She'll just wrap parts in that and spray, and it gives this really cool kind of almost scaled look. Uh, her rifle is done that way. It looks like I, I love low tech kind of kludgy approaches like that. Uh, now, shifting gears from uh, from retro to the what would Stoner do rifle? Just you, I haven't met that many people that actually have gotten to use one. What do you think? It's the best rifle I've ever shot. Hands really? Down. Hands down. Uh, the balance, the everything that that anyone who watches in range has heard people say, right? I mean, the pointability, the balance, the 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 weight involved. Everyone I even just hand it to thinks it's not real. They're, <laughs> You, you can't appreciate it until... Because there's nothing like it that you can just pick up and be like, oh, I've held a rifle like that. Right, um, right. The, the weight and balance of it is doesn't exist anywhere else. Uh, it's the greatest thing I've ever owned. Yeah, That's that's awesome. Do you, now, do, do you have your uh, final configuration for it? Like, is that is, is that what you're going with long-term, what we see there? 
I would say so. There's a chance that I will put a smaller light on the front. This was just kind of a little hacky solution because I happen to like this. This was a flashlight that I liked a lot. Um, but yeah, I could I could use a smaller one that I've put on a little trunk gun of mine. But as far as the you know the hollow sun optic, uh, yeah, just I am I am over over the moon with with how well this works. That's that's awesome. Um, I, I speak for for myself and my entire audience when I say I'm incredibly jealous. Like on on my Discord, people people talk about that gun every other day and just how much how much they want one. I've I've ordered a, a, a lower. I wasn't able to afford the whole thing at the time, but uh, man, just just look at it. It's so awesome. <laughs> it's yeah, so I built fantastic. one for my wife as well. Uh, slightly different. Hers, I put a. I had a little fun with the front foregrip. Uh, and yeah. the front sort of cage around the barrel. The, the handguard, I, I mean, I call it a cage. I'll send you another photo if you want to drop it in. Hers was, sure. it's a little different like, but it's equally light, equally handy. And yeah, she loves it. Man, that's, that thing's awesome. Uh, did, you, did you go with the KE trigger group and everything? I mean, is yours literally just internally exactly what, what Carl and Ian did? Yeah, SLT1 on the trigger. Um, it does have the JP captured, you know, buffer spring system which are the two biggest kind of internal components there. Um, yeah, the, I, I am just really, it was, people say, oh, did you wait for the new stock to come out? And I thought, it's one of those things, it's almost, I don't own an Apple product, but it's like a lot of the Apple people, whenever they buy anything, they're like, oh, I should have waited, the new one is better and gooder, and it's got an S. Um, but I, I look at that, I'm like, yeah, but everything you own, you love, they make good products. You know, so I'm not sad that I, that I had the older generation uh, uh, Cav Arms and G-Wax lowers. Uh, so yeah, the other one was a Cav. This is a G-Wax because I just bought them when they looked neat and then people couldn't find them. So is it as good as the ones coming out from Brownells? No, if you bought one, yours will be better. But mine got here sooner. So it's a balance. And there's, there's a certain coolness as well to having one from uh, from one of the original runs, you know, that's there's there's some there's some coolness there. That's that's sort of the original. Like when I think of the what would Stoner do rifle, that lower profile is kind of what I picture. You know, yeah. it's it's that's you know, there's a certain coolness to that that, uh, you know, it, it isn't quite matched by one of the newer lowers, even if it will be more more functional. And, and I'm sure it'll be also just, you know, better in every conceivable way but i know, I know russell's been working really hard to to yeah. make it well, there's a brilliant um, guy and like art the size of a building russell's he's so soft-spoken he doesn't show up in as much media as some other gun people but he is a blessing to this industry yeah he's awesome like one time i needed help selecting one of his compensators and he helped me through discord for like 30 minutes just to make sure that i got exactly the right comp but he didn't he didn't have to do that it's a it's a hundred dollar sale you know mm -hmm. but but he did it, you know. So yeah, sounds you know, like that was awesome. Um, so what shaped your view of firearms, other than just sort of growing up with them? Were there any sort of sort of pivotal moments or anything where you thought, you know, uh, man, I, I need to change the way that I view these things, or uh, or society views them incorrectly, or just or whatever it was, where you realized that you had a sort of almost an ideology developing around firearms. Um, we are the product of all of our inputs, and I'm, I count myself very fortunate that there's been a huge diversity of viewpoints in my life, mostly mm. because of where I've lived. I've lived in big cities, I've lived in rural areas, I've gone from Jersey to Western Philadelphia to West Montana, now I'm out in the Pacific Northwest, and meeting different communities. So 
growing up made guns sort of normal, as we said. They didn't, but there was no extreme view that I would have. Growing up in extremely anti-gun areas probably made me, there's like a backfire effect, right? When you live in New Jersey and there's very restrictive laws, it makes anyone who is a gun person there dig their heels in harder and make me more pro-gun, like vehemently pro-gun. Honestly, like moving out to the the rural West, the Intermountain West, where guns are just, they're just meh, who cares? It actually, it doesn't make you more of a gun person. It makes you just more comfortable listening to different voices. It was right around the same time that I was becoming much more involved with minority shooting groups, with LGBTQIA shooting groups, and those voices in the conversation, people like, you know, armed equality, people like Pink Pistols, a lot of the, if no one online is following, like Latino Rifle Association is a huge voice online these days. The gun community isn't a monolith and experiencing voices saying, like, we we love guns. We don't get to just love guns like you do and experience no repercussions. Like, it, it impacts our family relationships. It impacts our, our relationships in our neighborhoods. And seeing how nuanced the discussion is. There's a college professor who runs a kind of a movement and a Twitter account called Gun Culture 2.0, where it's about the, the discussion can't be a cudgel anymore. It's not a monolithic movement. There are a lot of voices coming from a lot of backgrounds with firearms and how people uh, are treated, how people are treated with their permission to use and carry them and how they are likely to be treated by their families by buying them or by their communities and the authorities in their communities by owning them or carrying them. That all needs to be in the discussion. And a lot of the tone has been set for years by people who look, frankly, like me, who are a bunch of middle-aged white guys who are like, gun's good, end of sentence. We're over, we're done now. And there's more to the discussion than that. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think the gun community uh, at large can do to uh, sort of welcome this diversity? Because I feel like the, the... the sort of general approach is to just completely ig- ignore it uh, entirely, mm. to ignore that, you know, a, a huge chunk of us um, don't look like you and I, you know. Uh, what can we do to sort of welcome new people, make sure that they feel comfortable and uh, sort of grow the sport instead of just saying, no, I want it to be the way it always was because that's what is most comfortable for me. Um, most co- Here, dearest, can I have that bottle of Makers? You got it. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, we're just gonna we're gonna light a fire on this answer. <laughs> I asked that question in the absolute most circuitous way possible, but that's no, true. And I will answer it in the most direct way possible. Please stop bowing at the altar of police. They're a huge chunk of the market that you see in advertising and like at SHOT Show, people think the police community is the gun community. Uh, They are wildly different market shares. Um, Police acquisition of equipment and ownership and use is massively different than civilian ownership and use of firearms. And for most people who do not look like you and me, the police do not represent protection. They represent um, fear and, and harm and potential harm, let's say. And it really blows my mind, the anti-government types, the anti-authoritarian types. Where's my Hawaiian shirt, right? They're like, oh, don't let them go. go, Don't let them come take your guns. Well, it's not like the director of the ATF is going to walk up to your house and take your guns. If if something horrible happens with gun policy, 
it's going to be your local police who are charged with that and coming to harass you for your guns. So the idea that people view, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, pick on local Johnny law enforcement, as I'm very clear, there's a statement I say over and over and over. I am not anti-policeman. I'm anti-policing. I think the, the way the state interacts with her citizens, the way authority asserts itself at the local level is very problematic. And people who, who are like, oh, well, you know, definitely the, the cops, I got to have my Blue Lives Matter flag right on my dust cover. That's turning off all the minority community, all the LGBTQ community who wants to participate in the gun culture because they see literally the banner of someone who scares them all over all the gun shit for sale and all over the gun ranges. They go to the gun ranges and that's all they see on the walls is a bunch of Blue Lives Matter. That's not helpful to the gun community. And it's not just because of making connections to other marginalized groups. It's not helpful for our rights in the long term. I view any state authority as a potential encroachment of your rights. And I don't, I don't like the cozy relationship with which the, we could talk for days about the NRA and how they are very silent of Orlando Castile and on down with any, any, anything the cops do is good. I have a problem with anyone who says that you get a lot of that in the gun community. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it, there's also this, this strange thing that happens where the gun community is just in a general sense, very much afraid of this sort of amorphous authority, you know, they, they, them, you know, we've got to, we've got to fight them. But yet there is a, there is a very direct them that oftentimes threaten their neighbors and friends and classmates. And yet they'll stand by them and say, well, no, they wear a uniform that I respect. So for strange social reasons, I will blindly say that everything that they do is good. It, it's just, it's odd. It's never made any sense to me. And I'm, I'm not really sure of the historical origin of that of that viewpoint, but it's, it's, I think, it's very strange. I think participating in, in the status quo is for many people a cloak of protection. Uh, the person who is personally neutral, unlike, I don't know any police, I don't care about the police that much, but that person who puts the FOP sticker in the back window of their car because they want to get like less hassle when they get pulled over. Maybe they got a gun in the car. They don't want to ask questions about their guns. That person is participating in the system, whether they know it or not. They're saying the status quo that we have right now, the power structure we have right now, I'm, I'm fine with that. It's tacit approval that kind of just doesn't let things change. That's fair. Yeah, that's, that's fair. And I, I, think, I think a lot of, you know, a, a lot of white males have, have never witnessed an interaction between someone who is not white and the police. They've never seen how different that is. You know, I, I never will forget the first time that I was in a vehicle that was pulled over and my friend was driving and the police treated him very differently than they had treated me all the times that I was pulled over. And I, I had this moment where I realized, oh, this is like this could turn into a very dangerous situation super fast. And once you yeah. once you've had that experience, then you look at the police differently and, you know, white folks in their in their 30s have usually never had an interaction like uh, like that it's just they have no conception of the danger that a, a huge portion of america faces anytime they interact with this authority and it is dangerous i mean it's it's some of these interactions just walk this this very strange line um yeah we're all we're all just products of our inputs you know we're, we're very you know we i'm not gonna count anyone as a bad person who views things differently than me because they have they've had a different life than i've had yeah, and I probably shouldn't be, you know, sitting here like grandstanding about law enforcement, but it's it. 
it's just this thing that the gun community has just always completely refused to address. Um, so, okay, so so if we need to address law enforcement, how can we go about that? What what are some some steps that we can take to uh, to make things better in the next year or so? Um, a lot of it. I mean, I'll I'll sound. Some people will call me a you know a communist libertarian, which is like what those things don't go together. The people call me every name in the book whenever I talk about social <laughs> policy. Um, I. In broad strokes, I would like to see any changes to laws and policy that just reduce citizen interactions with authorities. Fair, um, fair. Like reduce the number of times people interact with police and you will reduce a lot of friction between those communities. So things like I'm fine, perfectly fine with my city and others in the area, uh, Seattle, of course, the defund movement. They've, they're transferring things like traffic enforcement, traffic enforcement. Make it done by the traffic unit, not an armed police crime investigation unit. Mm. And there's a lot of people out there that say, well, do you know how many traffic stops or how we fight the war on drugs? And I'm like, that's part of the solution. Like, end consensual crimes. Like, just take away opportunities for the state to assert power over people and reduce the number of interactions you have between civilians and police. Mm. Uh, and this, I'm trying to word that as, as neutrally as I can. I'm not making a value judgment on any of the parties involved. I'm just saying when those parties interact, you will get friction, either resentment friction or kinetic friction. And you can reduce that friction by just reducing the interactions. A healthy society is one in which the police are like the Maytag repairman, just kind of sitting there with not a lot to do. And they're not out there trying to fix things because we, we define less stuff as a problem for them to solve. Um, like, yeah. holy Christ, I live in Seattle. I visit California. We've got Oregon in between us. I'm there a lot. Mental health. If someone's in a mental health crisis, having an intervention team of specialists who are... Tr it's unfair both to the mental health crisis and to the police that we send police to, to like respond to those situations. It is unfair to all parties. It is horrendous when a firearm comes out for both the victim and for the police they weren't trained for that they shouldn't have been in that situation yeah that's, that's a very good point and you know it's, it's interesting that you mentioned something as simple as just limiting interaction because we always we always tend to we always tend to think about things in these sort of very binary terms you know every, everybody is working off of the talking points you know left versus right and one of the things that you do very well is you'll sort of come out of left field with a, a completely different solution like you've got your your blog post where you talk about solutions to various uh, gun issues in general and you know these are some very simple things that you suggest that I've, I've never literally never heard anyone else mention and you know I've, I've also never heard I've never heard anybody put it as simply as limit interactions but you're absolutely right like that's a that's a that's a completely nonpartisan way to solve this problem in a big way you know and, and I'm, sure, I'm sure part of it is, is policing culture but you can even work around policing culture by limiting interactions as well. Um, it is, it is both nonpartisan and deeply partisan. There's going to be a lot of people on the, the conservative side of the spectrum that hate, just hate the idea of citizens being able to use substances recreationally or citizens engaging yeah. in sex work. There's yeah. a lot of people on the left side of the spectrum who hate the idea of not enforcing sort of what I'll call almost business enforcement um, that's, that's a big thing also for me. I don't, I don't really like a lot of the licensing and inspection that drags down a lot of small businesses, a lot of minority communities trying to start an auto repair shop or start a barber shop, but sending in 
armed agents of the state to like enforce those kind of title cut like hey we have to shut you down and padlock your doors like you are that, that is a thing that we might we might have to let some shit slide on small businesses sorry my yeah. friends on the left <laughs> like yeah that's a that's a really good point i mean and it is starting a small business it is it is just nightmarish in any in any major city in america um the the hoops and you have to have a, you have to have a certain amount of resources up front to start the business in the first place to sort of play within to play within the system that somebody else might not have access to and it I, it almost you almost do get the sense that it's it is engineered that way whether knowingly or not it uh it does yeah. seem like it's engineered to keep things as they are right now mm-hmm. um yeah absolutely what do you think we can do sort of on a, on a on a daily basis to depoliticize life in general like we're to a place where every action has political connotations it, nothing is without political connotations what can we do to just generally depoliticize our lives it's a hard one Oof. if it's uh, even possible i mean i'm you know i'm like watching much as people all day around this country, I'm watching these election returns and having a hard time just jumping into conversations with friends and family because, as you say, like everything has this cloak of politics to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, and you can't escape it. I mean, no, nothing, nothing is without it. You know, every every billboard even has a has a is steering you towards towards one sort of political thought or another. Um, one of two two binary options that just don't I would, really seem to work. I don't want to just be that person who quotes like a Reason magazine article and says like the solution to problem speech is more speech. But in the what I mean when I say is like, don't tweet if you could text. Don't text when you could be calling. Does it? You have to make a phone call or can you speak to someone in person? The more face to face we get, the harder it is. It's the same reason that people are like assholes in their cars, but if they're in a parking lot, they're probably not likely to be as angry because seeing someone's face there's there's all of these extra indicators these nonverbal cues that are part of like how we evolved to converse and when those are not there i mean that's this is study after study about why people drive like shitheads is because you can't read subtle cues in someone's face and body language as to like why they're merging in front of you and without that information without all those markers you are going to assume like the worst in this person because you they just impacted you you can't tell. Maybe that's like a woman crying from like a bad day or a father who's like trying to calm down like kids in the car. Like You don't know. Um, so, yeah, like getting as much FaceTime with people remains to be important. Like Pandemic can't right now. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's my only answer to deep. I don't know the depoliticizing. I think that almost just happens organically when we just stop being so hurt and angry and it's easier to avoid hurting other people and hurting yourself if you can get FaceTime with people. You know, that's, that's completely fair. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a small rural town, and yeah. um, even folks who had wildly different belief systems, you sort of were forced to get along with them because you had to interact with them often. You were sort of yeah. forced to understand their perspective and point of view. And yeah, I mean, I, that's, that's fair. The more, distant we, the more distant we are from one another, the less likely we are to even be capable of understanding them they become the, the mythical they they them the, the enemy <laughs> those people yeah. over there who are different from me well uh, and uh, shifting gears a little bit so that uh you know i don't want to make you like just have super heavy uh philosophical discussions for for <laughs> time after time but uh 
Um, I've heard you talk before about, you know, sort of securing guns inside your home. Mm -hmm. um, let's say somebody lives in an apartment. You can't own a safe. You can't screw it down to the floor. What the hell are you supposed to do to, to, to make sure that your guns are looked after and, and aren't just lying strewn out everywhere right. like it just rained guns in the night? So the big one for me that I really like, uh, there's a bunch of products. I mean, I've given talks about what I, I would call them just gun security devices, not safes. Many times these products aren't even full enclosures. They're just boxes, yay big, that might take a pistol or they're an enclosure that wraps around the receiver of a firearm like this, a long gun. Uh, those are really nice solutions depending on how they're engineered. I'll probably have a video out pretty soon when I eventually, I've been trying to find like the perfect one that I would recommend to people nowadays. There's not one perfect one. I like, I don't like anything electronic, but that's just because I'm an old jack wagon asshole who hates electronic anything and like the future is bad. Like, Rrr. I don't have any electronic locks in any of our safes or anything in this house. But let's go ahead and say that electronics tend to be a point of failure that I'm not comfortable with with guns. Either a failure to secure or a failure to reliably operate when you need to get the firearm. So let's, and it simplifies the discussion if we write off electronics. A lot of the enclosures that are either tiny lock boxes or I'll call them like almost like claw clamp devices, the enclosures that utilize a simplex lock system, uh, the original Kaba simplex still used on some doors, but it's the five buttons in a row, chunk, chunk, really chunky buttons. And there are newer versions, because they're not all Kaba Simplex that's been licensed and copied, but Simplex style button press locks tend to be very operable uh, with gross motor movement. So even if you're stressed or scared, you're not like dialing a tiny dial or something like that. I like that. I like ka-chunk, ka-chunk buttons. They're usable if your hands are covered in filth, if you're sweaty, if you've got gloves on. I don't know. I mean, you're in a cab cabin, you're camping. Uh, so I like those a lot. Many locks like that are on the market. The one I like the most is made by Shotlock. Um, I think it's S-H-O-T-L-O-K, Shotlock. Now they make an electronic and a mechanical. The electronic's way more popular because it's got blinky lights and beep noises. So sometimes it's hard to find the mechanical. But I have loved their products for a while, personally. This is not an endorsement. Uh, a buddy of mine named Dave owns a website called Handgun Research, Handgun Safe Research. Yes, Handgun Safe Research. Oodles of videos about him busting up all these products. He has even said, hey, the shot lock isn't bad. It has a couple flaws. What I'm trying to do is take their current generation product fix the flaws in a I am an idiot and so can you sort of DIY sense and make like best bang for your buck. This is the thing. I haven't made it yet. One of the big flaws is that the lock that comes with it, the, the key based lock uh, sucks and you can make it better. That's one of the things I'll show, but that's, that's, that's my best answer. Get something mechanical with chunky buttons. And if it just clamps over the gun, and you don't have like curious toddlers or even teenagers. Like if you have an AR, like I remember being 13, I remember taking ammo and with like vice grips, like pulling bullets out of their cartridge and like making a, a pile of powder and lighting it on fire or like packing it into crushed up newspaper and making little bombs and things in the backyard. Like 
Sorry, Mom and Dad, you're aghast about this. One, There was this one time, do you remember, Mom and Dad, in like 1986 or 7, the trash man reported that there were a bunch of casings in the garbage that had live primers. And they said, why are you throwing out explosives? That's because I was dumping bullets out. I was, I took like 10 bullets apart and I made like a little pile of gunpowder and I lit it on a stone tile in the backyard, like on the walkway. <laughs> so yeah, like a kid in the house could pull the mag, but as far as the best kind of enclosure you can have, that, that one's up there for me. Awesome. Well, yeah, yeah, that's, I'll, I'll include a link to that. It's a long it's, answer. <laughs> no, 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 that's a great answer. That's a great, do, do you, could most folks just find one on one of those on Amazon, you think? Amazon or some other distributors, but again, like the, the shot lock uses M and E, dash M and dash E for mechanical and electronic. Their dash E products are the ones that you kind of get like steered to because that's the most popular item. Uh, the dash M I really like. Awesome. Cool. I'll, I'll try to include a I'll try to include a link to that in the description because I'm gonna order one of those for myself actually maybe to uh, uh, to test out and, uh, and see yeah, how yeah. it goes. Uh, and for the record, I used to also uh, cut shotgun shells open and dump the powder out and just you know you just you, you got to find out how that shit works and and see what, what what you can do with it. You know you can do all kinds of dangerous shit with, with, oh my God. <laughs> with yeah. some powder. Really <laughs> like crushing a shotgun shell in the vice and then like hammering a nail into the crimp to like peel the crimp open. I remember doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In retrospect, oh, like how are we alive? Uh, hashtag kids are fucking stupid. Yeah. Really should have died a long time ago, but <laughs> all right. Now for just some, some like super stupid fun questions. What, what's, what's your favorite gun you've ever shot regardless of how much it was? So that's one of those favorite breath of air questions, but I'll give you a, a variety of, not a long list, like, but here's the short answers. Uh, almost all of them have been guns owned by friends. Yeah, we'll say all of them have been. And they're mostly those kind of ridiculous guns that I can't justify owning, but I'm so glad I know someone who owns one. So my buddy AST, uh, he's had a number of really cool things show up at the DEF CON shoot. Uh, for a while, like for years, uh, he had the Serbu Super Shorty. Like he, he was the guy who had that Super Shorty shotgun. And really fun, there's a video of me, you wouldn't, re like, it's fucking fat-ass Dave long ago, but I was, like, one hand shooting this, super, like, super shorty, and he was, like, giving me higher and hotter and hotter loads and, like, a slug, and it was on Serbu's website for a long time, like, his YouTube video, so that was funny. Um, he also brought an Arsenal Firearms, the Double 1911, that was, oh, yeah. that came out a couple years ago, right? I think Mr. Hinks was the Bond villain that had one of those in a, in a movie, but yeah, I got to shoot the double 1911. Again, like, it's just a gun that's nothing but fun. For me, and there's sporting event, like, sporting and, and competitions where you have a good experience with it. Like, I'm so glad this is a beautiful gun to swing on and hit that bird out of the sky or, you know, knock down that steel. I've had those experiences. But the ones that really make you smile, and I, you know what, I own one that is a completely ridiculous firearm We'll call it a firearm, and it's so high, like, find one immediately and shoot it, and that is the Can Cannon. Get an X-Products Can Cannon upper and put it on one of your ARs and lob cans. Um, it is purposeless. It is other, because that's the point, right? It's, it's the equivalent of, why does this cocktail exist? It, it is ridiculous. Nobody should own this liquor. You're like, because it's funny. Like, it's funny. The fact that it has no other purpose makes it yeah. funny um you know why why jump out of a perfectly good airplane 
because I, I wanted to. When things have no other justification for existing or being engaged in as activities, it makes them more fun. And the can cannon is the best example of that. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I kind of want to get one and just just screw around with it. Uh, you know, I, I shoot I shoot a lot of Magnum Revolver for that reason. Like, there's not really any purpose for it. For, like, you know, Magnum Revolver had its place a long time ago, but in, in 2020... Magnum Revolver's right. fucking stupid, but it's just, it's just, it's there, and I love it, so, so I shoot the hell yeah. out of it. <laughs> I will, you know what, there. get me your shipping address, I will just send you the Can Cannon upper, it's not NFA controlled, it's, you know, it's it's not an FFL item, I want to see, I want to see the smile on your face once you've lobbed some, because again, like, I don't want to be mean to X products, but like, 12 of these need to exist, because everyone <laughs> right. could just share them, everyone just shares them with each other. You don't need to make more. I'll borrow yours. You borrow hers. Who fucking gives a shit? Because no one needs this fucking thing. That's a really good point. I mean, it, it is. Yeah, that's that's just that's that's meant to be shared. Well, yeah, I will I will totally take you up on that. I will absolutely shoot that in a video oh, yeah. and enjoy it. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's Excellent. that's something I've been interested in for a while. <laughs> well, okay. On that note, then, are there are there any guns like that where you shot them and you just thought, I fucking hate this. This is a terrible gun. Like, why why would anyone own this gun? Yes. Uh, well, in a way, I try not to be like that judgmental. I'm not putting words like not valuing your words differently, right? But there are. I will. I'll rephrase that as. That's a bold choice. Or, or you look at something like, so you spent money on that. All right. How, how do you feel about that? Are you okay with that decision? Like those kind of those thoughts go through your head. Um, there are plenty of guns that are just unreliable and and crappy, like badly made. By small cut, like when when Carl and uh, you know Inrange did the review of that twenty two Thunderstruck revolver, the twenty two Magnum double revolver, like it literally just doesn't work. And he sent it back, and he got another one, like still it fucking work. So we'll set aside guns that just don't function, uh, because those are and 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 again, like small business is rough in this world, right? We talked about like it's hard to run a business. So I get it. A lot of people try to bring a product to market with all the best intentions. And then you run out of money and then you can't fix what you got in the channel. And uh, who was like, oh, my God, um, who, who made the uh, the super lightweight aluminum? Christ, Lauren. And what was her husband? Hudson. Oh, Hudson Firearms. The Hudson. Great example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Hudson Lauren Manufacturing. Hudson, right? um, great, like lovely people. But like yeah. mark the market's a cruel mistress. And yeah, if you yeah. kind of like run out of runway... So we're not we're not talking about firearm companies that just had a problem and can't exist anymore to support you. And by the way, full disclosure, like Taylor, my lever gun, I've had to send it back twice now to get things fixed. And that's why you want to go with like a like a big name, a responsible. This is something that I love. Um, we're just jumping around for a second here. I love when new people to the gun community learn about how like warranty and repair works. Because if you have a person who's like, I had a dishwasher that broke three years old and uh, they wouldn't fucking fix it. And you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, that sucks for you. Welcome to the gun community because you're about to get the full ball jiggling experience. Um, my battery's going to die. Give me one second. Here. So you were talking about the full ball jiggling experience of the uh, of For like a big established company, you yeah. can literally find a firearm at you know, like your relative dies and you inherit a 60 year old firearm 
And depending on the company, sometimes you'd be like, hey, this is, this is the action's not running right. They'll like send it to us. Yeah, sure. Here you go. And they'll like service it depending on who the company is. And that's the firearm industry almost stands alone in that regard for how some brands will really take seriously to the point of destroying and remilling a new receiver. You know, yeah. like they yeah. will be like, we'll cut it in half. We'll send photos to the ATF. We'll re-serialize a new receiver with the old serial number and send it back to you. Um, that's, I don't know any other industry that behaves like that to some customers. Yeah, but but it is it is hit or miss. You know, some some companies just tell you to screw off while others will bend over backwards. Like recently, um, I, I've had a Ruger 1911 for the last couple of years and it's had issues on and off. And they finally were just like, do you just want a, another one? And they just made me a new gun, this model that I didn't even know they still made. And it, it turned up at turned up at my shop like awesome. a, a week later and I was like what the fuck this is who, who who does that like I was not I was not expecting them to go uh to go to that length yeah yeah it's, now it's you mentioned amazing. um owning a shop what's the experience been like how did you make that kind of decision and uh, forgive me if you've already treated this answer uh, in other topics right like did you start as like an at home FFL or did you start as an established shop how did that happen this is a really weird story, and and I actually have this is, I haven't talked about this yet because I only recently decided that I was going to sort of openly discuss it because I, look when I'm doing reviews like I don't want somebody to feel like oh he wants me to go buy this gun from his shop because I sell every brand you can think of I don't give a shit if you buy whatever this is from me or not it, it doesn't matter like I'm not gonna have that in a week anyway so it, it doesn't yeah you know it it does nothing but I still didn't want people to feel like I was trying to like yeah buy buy this thing for me uh, but. Uh, so the way it started, a buddy of mine, um, so I, I do all my recording work in the evening for the most part, and during the day, um, I was working as a luthier doing instrument repair at, uh, at my buddy's shop, and, and one day I was like, hey man, what if we what if we sold, like, what if we got our FFL and sold guns out of here? And it was this sort of two-year process of talking about it and kind of gearing up for it, and uh, it was one of those things where we sort of eventually talked ourselves into it. And... It was very difficult. It was an incredibly time-consuming process. We sold all of our initial stock in two days <laughs> because it was in the middle of the pandemic. Now we can't get more stock. I have I have That's three amazing. guns right now to sell. That's um, amazing. But uh, but yeah, it's been it has been the hardest and craziest thing. I've been wanting to make the jump into the firearms industry for a long time, and it just seemed like the right time. And I, I kind of think I might be insane for having done this. We'll now, see, when you we'll said initial happens. stock, does the industry or the regulatory climate require demonstration of a certain degree of commitment to like the process? So you have to show like we are engaged in business with all of this inventory or how did, how did you say, how did you do that? Well, it's, it, it's for, on the regulatory side, no, but you, you sort of have to keep a constant stream of purchases going with a lot of these distributors or they'll ignore yeah. you is yeah. one of the things I've never heard anybody really discuss is the way the allocation system works for a lot of these distributors is it's really just based on how much your your person there likes you. And if they if they just don't feel like selling you a Glock or whatever, even if they have it in stock, you're not getting it. So it's this very strange thing where, you know, luckily in one case, the, the guy just liked us, I guess. You know, we were, I guess, we were nice to him on the phone or something, and maybe other people hadn't been that day. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it's it's very strange. It is purely just based on who likes who and, and how much. And I, going into this, knowing that would not have made me rethink things, but I would have approached it a bit 
differently like you know it's like do i need to do i need to send the guy at lipsy's like a, like a gift basket or, or just something <laughs> it's do any very manufacturers sell in, in quotes right sell directly to the public where they will have a retail store and they'll say here is this and find your local ffl we'll ship it to to them does any manufacturer do that not really i mean there there's the sort of there's a sort of classic um situation where like you can directly approach somebody like Glock, let's say, but you have to have so much money to spend on inventory. You know, that's that's really only feasible for like like uh, Palmetto State Armory is here in town. Their their headquarters is right down the road. They you know they they're all of their stores are are, are Glock uh Glock dealers. So yeah. They're working directly with Glock. But at this point, you know, I'm, hopefully one day, hopefully we'll be so successful, you know, a couple of years from now, I can call Glock and order $40,000 worth of inventory. But right now, that just that just ain't in the cards. So I, we have to go through these distributors. And there, there's another level of uh, pain in the ass there as well, because let's say, let's say you take your gun home and it's broken. I mean, that happens. Even Glock makes lemons sometimes, right? Right. The way it works, if you bought it from a distributor and th through but, me, is there's I, not a whole lot that I can do to help. I'm, I'm literally hearing the sound of Glock people clicking thumbs down when you said that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> they're 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 dying inside just from like, Glocks never break. They never break ever. Yeah, sure, surely I haven't broken a bunch of them myself. Yeah. They, so <laughs> so if if you break your gun after you take it home. And you bring it back to me, like I, I can't do a, a ton for you. You're gonna have to contact Glock, and and if if I'm a, a direct Glock dealer, I have more clout with Glock. I can call Glock up and say, hey, you know, you guys sent a 19 in, and the 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 striker broke when my customer took it home. Maybe I can coordinate sending it back. Um, but otherwise, sorry, you know, you're you're kind of you're kind of on your on your own there, I guess. So. Um, there are some serious benefits to being a direct dealer for for some of these brands. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird time to jump into this industry. Something else I'd like to say uh, before I quit my yammer in here is that if you're look if you're looking to just start a gun store right now, just to get in on all this and make some make some cash, uh, that's a terrible idea because this market it is going to tank one day, and you are going to deeply regret that you dumped all of your money into this right at the end of the, the, the pandemic. So don't do that. Be smart and open something small and do it for the love of the game and for the love of guns and not because you're trying to get rich quick. But <laughs> that's, Did that's you my... find um, the ATF side of the process to be straightforward in terms of your paperwork? What was expected of you? How much ball yes. dickery? Yeah, I mean, yeah, g generally. I say generally because there is some weird stuff where they'll say something to you like, we would prefer that you not do this. And I I'm a very by-the-book person, so I say, well, you know, what the fuck do you mean by that? Do you mean like I go to jail if I do that, or do you mean you would just personally rather that I not? Like, don't don't, don't be so vague with me. And they, they do say it that way sometimes. Um, but the, the paperwork was straightforward. It took about a week to sort all of that out because there's a lot that you have to do. There's a lot you have to get done. And then they come out and interview you after that and sort of explain to you the processes and stuff, which a lot of which you'll be familiar with if you've just been around guns and gun shopping for a long time. Um, and then they sort of give you the rundown on what you what you can and can't do. And that's the only part of it that is slightly sticky, where it's just I, I really don't like somebody vaguely saying, you know, 
don't do this. I'm not going to tell you how many times you could do it or what yeah. the repercussions would be. You know, I just, I don't like that. I mean, would, would you be troubled by that it's, level it's of pieces vagueness? of flair in office yeah. space? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Prefer it, it really 17 is. pieces of flair. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I mean, would that, would that be troubling to you if you were, if you were opening a business and you got this, these really vague answers like that? Yeah, it's like the brace situation. Uh, by the way, what, what do you think the outcome will be ultimately for, for, for braces? What do you think will, will happen? I mean, no one remembers when people make a prediction and they're proven wrong if they're a nobody like me. So I'm going to make a split prediction, and it's two extremes. And I, this isn't completely off the mark, I think, because the the uncertainty of the situation and, if we're being honest with ourselves, the legal nonsensicalness of the situation whether you are a very anti-gun person and you're like this is bullshit or whether you're a pro-gun person you're like this is bullshit um the atf will eventually one day probably not in my opinion for at least eight years will one day make a decision to be like all right this is bullshit and they're going to say either that braces are short-barreled rifles or they're going to say that short-barreled rifles are a stupid fucking construct and they, they're meaningless under the law and they'll scrap them. And it's going to depend a lot on where the country is and where, the, where a lot of things are when that decision comes. It's ultimately, I hope, and this goes very much to like, here's your call to action, America. Um, I hope that it happens when there is nothing catastrophic going on and that so many people have bought braces that they are like the most normal. Th like, why did Prohibition, he says with an empty glass, why did Prohibition ultimately fail? It failed because it was became a joke. Like, nobody was enforcing it. Local states had defunded all resources for enforcement. Like, nobody cared. There was just beer and wine and liquor everywhere. And the state like small s state, like the authorities, they know that if wanton disregard for the law is going on, it delegitimizes them. And that's terrifying to, to authority figures. Like they have to, they have to jump on that shit quick and be like, let's change the situation so that I don't look like a punk. Um, that being said, if everyone just buys and uses and enjoys braced, short, short barreled, you know, firearms, braced pistols, we'll say, and it's so normalized that generations of shooters just have them. There's so many of them that the ATF can't, like, there's no way we can confiscate these. That's the best solution. And in my opinion, then it becomes like, oh, short-barreled rifles aren't, like, who fucking gives a shit? Because I don't know if there's good data on these being used in crime. The original reason for short-barreled restriction had to do with the 1920s and 30s gangsters, like trench coat firearms, right? I don't think a lot of those are being used in crime. So hopefully the climate is like, these are boring and dumb and the law is dumb and there's no crime stats, like just fucking change it. Now the worst case scenario, worst case, but like I think the worst case scenario is that somebody gets a bee in their bonnet and they say, this shall not stand. We must, this is an untenable situation. We have to regulate these. And in, in my opinion, mark my words, it is going to be a Republican administration. It is going to be a Trump-style administration that's in trouble politically and wants to throw a bone 
to like distract in the news cycle. And they are going like much like bump stocks. Like again, bump stocks, I think they're fucking dumb. And I think they are used by unwise people to do shitty things. And like the one guy in Vegas, like I don't really care about bump stocks. I think they're stupid. But which administration came for bump stocks? It was a GOP administration. And I think giving the wrong climate, the wrong thing happening, some school shooting or some bank robber, who the fucking knows, there's a chance someone is going to try to pass a measure in the future. And I think that measure has 0.0% of chance of passing without grandfathering in. So all the bump stocks that are out there are going to be grandfathered in anyway as like kind of SBRs, but not like who knows what's what the ATF's going to do. But that's yeah. that's what I think is going to happen. It's one or the other. Either they become a joke and no one cares or they become a horror story. And then then it's just like a logistical legal nightmare. Well, with, with any with any luck, they're just they're so common that it just nothing ever yeah. happens, and we just continue on this way for forever. Yeah. Um, and every year that nothing happens is a year in the right, in my opinion, the right direction because there's so many products now just coming out yeah. with braces. Like any, like so many things are braces. They're just gonna be the more they're on the market. You can't. Ban- it's like if someone were to say the F-150 is a fuel guzzler and we shouldn't regulate it as a car. It should be a light truck. Um, commercial vehicle. You know how many F-150s are out there? <laughs> like, you can't, you can't at this point. It's, it is politically unfeasible. Yeah, well, I, I hope, you know, I hope that's, I hope that ends up being the state of things. It just fades away and that's, you know, and, and that's, that's it. Because uh, it's, because, I don't know anybody who doesn't have one. Do you know anybody who doesn't have one single braced, you know, braced oh. gun? I don't. Yeah. And the I've modularity of the system makes it so weird because it's it's not an important part of the fire. It's not a it's not a pressure bearing or functional part of the firearm. So are people going to like serialize their brace? I, I don't. It's so strange. <laughs> right. My piece of rubbery plastic. I will now. I will now have it engraved. Here is, yeah. Here is. I got you. I got one for you. Here's the five percent or less chance, and people are gonna like find this video in 2019 and be like, or not 2029, and like 2029, they're gonna find this video and be like, they knew the future. Fold the dollar bill of the pyramid as a plane crashing. You know. Now the five percent chance is that they become like a registered drop-in auto seer. That you're going to have to serialize your arm brace, and depending on what firearm it's attached to, like that's legal, but somehow the arm brace is the thing that's regulated, which is also hilarious, because like you could have an NFA trust with all your arm braces at somebody's house, and none of the rifles are there. Right. (laughs) these are the most important things I own are these weird hunks of rubber and plastic. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> the There's your 5% chance. I, I am, I can imagine that future, the, the, the freaking future is weird, man. <laughs> it sure is. Yeah. It sure, so, so do you think there will be, there'll be like a, like in this scenario, is there like a, a brace amnesty period where you can have your yes. braces in, engraved within that six Absolutely. months? Declare any, them to the ATF. Any major change to the regulatory climate will involve an amnesty period. Uh, going forward for something that big because again it gets it doesn't get back to political capital it gets back to legitimacy of authority bump stocks they didn't have to do that because nobody knows anyone who owns a like this my weird cousin owns a bump stock and we don't talk to him because he's a fucking idiot like no one owns one of those 
You don't talk to him because he has a bump stock. That's the reason. <laughs> but like braces, or even if they ever like tried to ma make pistols, concealable fire, because pistols were supposed to be part of the NFA, like concealable firearms. But again, why didn't they do it in the 30s? Because there was too many, there were too many pistols out there. And the authority would be instantly delegitimized if they try to pass a measure and no one complies. It's the same thing we almost saw with um, large capacity, I would call them standard capacity magazines. And there was this weird situation where like New York State is a good example. New York State passed a law and there's pretty good numbers on how many 30 round AR mags were in New York. And there's also really hard numbers on how many got turned in and New York State was like, we look like fucking dumbasses. <laughs> no authority wants that. No authority wants widespread disregard of their edict. That's fair. Yeah. yeah do, you, do you happen to know right offhand just roughly what the percentage of, uh, of compliance was on the uh, magazine turn-in? Oof, it was low. Um, again, because the compliance included surrendering or transferring out of state. And we have numbers on surrendering, which no one with any brains in their head would do that. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. So I understand why the numbers artificially were low. I bet that there's plenty of like dentists and school teachers who owned them and shipped them to a relative who like lives in Pennsylvania or Vermont or something. And they're like, all right, let's hold on to these for a while and talk to me in a few years. And technically they're complying. Like if their dumb fuck teenage kid buys pot from a dealer and then the cops kick in their door for reasons that we already talked about, they're not going to find a 30 round magazine in the house. But that's, is that compliance? Is that non-compliance? Overall, derision. We'll say, what was the percentage of derision? It was high. <laughs> it was really high. It was really high. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that should be actually now in in polls. Whenever there's a poll, like there should be there should be the normal two numbers, and then there should be a third a, a third uh, a category just for derision. You know how many people just expressed yes. intense derision at being just the laugh, it, it, the crying laugh emoji. It's <laughs> like you can click on that. <laughs> right. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry to keep you this long. By the way, I realize we've been, I'm having fun, we've been man, for a while. But, uh, this is just this is awesome. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, don't get to talk about uh, this stuff nearly as often as I'd like. Um, and, and and the the gun industry as a whole rarely talks about you know anything more than just just gun guns good. Me love gun gun great. You know. So well, hey, uh, what did we say earlier about um, like people who are like wanted like make themselves small and not be seen, right? Don't don't make waves. If you make waves, you suffer. And the gun industry, there there were a couple of wasn't there some she was either a three gun shooter. I don't think she was just some gun bunny or something. She was like a competitive shooter who said something that was clumsily worded. Like it was a dumb statement, but all sponsorship gone. Dropped from the team. Fuck off. Gone forever. Look at people still won't buy Ruger. There are people there are environmentally conscious people that won't get Exxon gas to this day because of the Valdez. There are people who won't buy Ruger products to this day because of the Ruger letter about the 10 round magazine yeah. is enough. And that was what, 1992? I mean, it's I, yeah, it was, people were still wearing hammer pants when that letter came out. Yeah, that was a while ago. That's right. Yeah, and like Bill, Bill Ruger's, Bill Ruger's been, he's not even, he's not even been living for how long, 15 years, something like that. I mean, it, it's, 
Um, yeah. And if you actually look at the content of the letter, I'm not saying that it was right or that what he said was the, the correct thing to say, but it's Isn't also that just, extreme. It's just been blown completely out of proportion, like everything else. It was else. clumsy, yeah. right? It was yeah. clumsy. Yeah. And it's that sort of, I don't, I don't know what words to use, but people, people self-censor. There's this chilling effect because you don't want to be, you don't want to be out there. It's, it's lonely out there in the rowboat. Like, uh, yeah. 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 And, and there, there is, and there's almost this thing that we do where we, we attack anybody who, we attack anybody who moves outside of the sort of normalized circle, lest you know, lest we be judged for our own weird thing that we, you know, that, 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 that we secretly believe. So it's like, oh, we'll yeah. just attack this person to take, to take uh, the focus off of me here. So, Which is, yeah. that's, that's my ultimate, as people have privately told me, because they won't say this publicly, like, I'm the, the ultimate unfuckwittable person because I'm not of this industry. Like, my paycheck is not beholden to anything about firearms. So I don't care how many people, there's so many threads about me being a, a communist libtard person here, and I'm actually a secret government agent over there. Did you see he once went, he worked with the NSA. Like, like yes, all true. Fuck it, who cares? Like, yes, I've, as I as I once posted, I think it was on like ARFCOM or something, in some, one of the many threads about me being the devil. Uh, I was like, what did I say? <laughs> I think I said, all my Antifa friends hate my police friends. My police friends hate my liberal friends. My liberal friends hate my anarchist friends. And my anarchist friends hate everybody. <laughs> like, but I don't have to fucking care. Like, because none of those people, again, this is super privilege. None of those people cut my paycheck. That's the only reason I have the ability to say what I say. And that's why I, it's, I love that you would invite me to come hang out and say these things because... There are a lot of voices in this community that don't have the freedom to say these kind of things. That's fair. Yeah, I, because there is there is this thing that happens. Um, you know, like like after this video comes out, I just put out a Q and A a few days ago where I said you know some similar shit. It is amazing. You get this sort of pileup of subscribers who are sort of just normal general gun guys, and then. They are going to absolutely flip their shit hearing this, but they need to hear it. They really need yeah. to hear it. And and then there will be another pileup of them. They'll they'll not have researched what I did in the past or something, and they'll then they'll they'll see this video or whatever comes next and absolutely freak out. So this, this is an important thing that we're doing here. We're we're causing heart attacks and maybe encouraging people yes. to, to think a little bit. This is uh, this is my impression right now while this video is playing. This is my impression of half the people on fucking ARFCOM. They're using their right hand to like click disapprovingly while they're second handing it. They're 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 strangering it up. They're rem oil fucking masturbating to being mentioned while they're like clicking down vote and opening new tabs to like talk about this shit. Uh, that's, I see that's pretty you. accurate. Love all of you fucking dumb nuts. But it's so accurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, what's up with the rage watching? Like that's a big. That's a seems to be a big thing in the gun community. It's like I fucking hate this, but I watch it every day. You know, they they compulsively do that. I don't know. People it's have like, so it's much. Like, I, yeah. I am. We we talk about like how privileged and fortunate we are that we get to have all these things. I would feel so lucky in my life if I had the free time that some of these people have. <laughs> I don't have any free time. <laughs> Just free hating time, like oh, it's two p.m. It's time to go hate for two hours. 
Better get it's my like daily you watch those the, the freaking religious d- douchebags who used to protest funerals, the Fred Phelps. Like, oh, yeah. You look, you're like, yeah. wow, you spent six hours that afternoon? I don't remember the last time I had six hours to do shit. Like, <laughs> right. I was seven years old the last time I had six unbroken hours just to, like, fuck off. And and they had time to make some, to do some crafts before that, you know, do some, some hateful sign crafts time, you know. That, exactly. that probably took up two hours, you know. Oh, my God. It's time, Which we it's could time say about the loudest pro and anti-gun voices as well. That some people, that some people are just very single-issue people. Yeah. And I, you know what? Whoever you are out there, I respect. I respect your process and your commitment. May be genuine, but the world, as ever, is complicated. Right. And it does not fit into a tweet or a sign or a afternoon spent shouting on the edge of a road. I know, you know, we talked a little bit about nuance earlier, but let's say that just by some freak chance, somebody is watching this and they're realizing, my God, I consider, I don't consider anything with any level of nuance. I am a one-dimensional sack of shit. <laughs> what, what can somebody who's, who's having that realization, what can you do, what can they go out and do to sort of just cultivate some nuance in their life, to, to just consider things from multiple angles? What can somebody do? This will be a fun, this, this might even be such a topical way to start to wrap it up, right? So look at Arizona. You know, the, the new senator from Arizona we will have is Mark Kelly. Gabby Gifford's husband, right? Captain Kelly, space program Kelly. When I met Captain Kelly, I, well, he's Commander Kelly technically in, the, in NASA, right? I met him. I bullshitted with him. I talked with him. You know, when I met him was back when I lived in Philly and I went to a huge anti-gun event where he was speaking. And I sat through the whole goddamn thing, which was bad. Like, it was very, very... They were. It was called, like, engaging different voices, and there were no different voices. But, like, I sat through the whole thing. And I, like, hung out and went up to him on the UPenn campus auditorium lobby, and, like, we just we just bullshitted for a while. Um, yeah, the, the thing we talked about earlier, you and I were saying, like... Don't tweet if you could call. Don't call if you could speak face-to-face. Like, get face-to-face. Um, much no, no one is saying that you're giving tacit endorsement to a community you, you find despicable by showing up. Unless your personal freedom and, like, life is at risk. I'm not encouraging people of color to, like, go hang out at a Klan rally. But I'm, if there's no harm that's going to befall you, Go to a community of people that you think are unlike you in every way and just spend time at an event. And you, like, good chance you're going to walk out of there being like, fuck those guys. But one time in, you know, 10, when you're like, huh, that was different. And then one time in 100, when you stick around after it's over and you just keep talking, that's, America's a big place. We have a lot of citizens. We have a lot of people out there. If more and more people did that, one in a hundred isn't that big a number at the end of the day. That's the only way I think we move the needle in the conversation. I think that's I think that's great advice. You know, maybe there there is there is just that chance that you'll see the humanity in someone where you didn't see it before. So I think that's uh, that's that's great advice. I think. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me to do this. This was a, a, an amazing amount of fun. Thank you. I'm, I'm right honored to have you here. I'm, I was thrilled. I'm so sorry my 
enhanced answers were very long. I don't know if you have to chop this one up or not, but um, I had a great time. I'm so like, thank you so much for reaching out. And it speaks volumes that you would just kind of like shoot a message for, for any of the smaller, either content creators or other voices, like anybody, you will be astounded if you just reach out. Like, again, like I've been on the phone with John. I've been on the phone with Jim Sullivan. Why? Because I just fucking called him. And I was like, hey, I don't know if you're busy, but I have some questions like Carl and Ian couldn't answer them. And I was tired of asking the Q&A. And he just fucking talked to me for a while. Like, reach out to people politely and professionally and they will respond. This was all the pleasure is on this side of the table for me. Like, this was great. You're amazing. And I love doing this. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. you're you're I go as far as to say that you're you're a personal hero of mine if I'm if I'm uh if, to be to be super oh, one. So I'm I'm honored to be one here. of us is doing something wrong if that's the case, but right. <laughs> probably me. <laughs> really, thank you. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much. Salud.